0: O Savior, King Jesus Christ, we come before you and we bow our hearts low before your majesty. We submit, we surrender, and we dedicate our lives unto you as we think about the ransoming power of your blood that has washed away our sin and given us eternal life in you. We thank you that you rule and reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. From the prophecies of Genesis 49, that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, To it reiterated in Psalm 60, Ephraim is my helmet and Judah is my scepter. We heard in Psalm 132, to the book of Revelation, where the rod of iron is in your hand to destroy your enemies, you rule and reign and have received your kingdom according to Daniel 7, ascending before the ancient of days and receiving that which is your inheritance, complete power, total sovereignty over all that was and is and is to come. We extol You, we magnify You, and we glorify You this day. We pray, Lord, as the Spirit moves in this service, that our worship would be acceptable incense before Your throne. We pray as we open up Your Scriptures, infallible, immutable, and preserved forever in Your Holy Word, we pray that they would be written on the tables of our hearts. We pray that You would quicken our feeble minds, Open our spiritual eyes, unstop our ears, and let us be quickened with tongues to speak and to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ that has saved us to a yet lost world. We pray that you would accomplish these things by your Spirit's use of this service today, all for your glory, all for your great name, and for the advancement of your kingdom. In the holy name of Jesus we pray, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. This morning, I would invite you to turn in your scriptures to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25 will be our primary text today. The title of today's message is Meeting the Bridegroom. And our verses will be 1 through 12, which deal with the parable of the ten virgins. In a moment, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of the word of God. We've mentioned that in Matthew's Gospel, it is structured around five great discourses. There are five sermons, if you will, that Jesus Himself has spoken through the course of Matthew's Gospel. And here we find ourselves in the center of the final, the fifth discourse, before He endures His passion and goes to the cross in chapters 26 and following. So with your Bible open to Matthew 25, let us read this parable together, verses one through twelve stand with me if you would out of reverence for the Scriptures. In Matthew twenty five, one we read, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves." And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. Verse 12, But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you you know neither the day nor the hour. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If we could get those lights turned up back there when you get a chance. This morning as we open the scriptures, we find in Matthew 25 a parable. We are not unfamiliar with this form of teaching because Matthew has many parables throughout the course of his gospel. One thing that we have learned in prior messages from chapter 13, verses 10 through 17 especially, as there is a record in the words of Jesus to answer the question, why do you speak in parables? The reason that Christ spoke in parables was several fold. For those who had ears to hear, it did illumine aspects of the kingdom of God for the disciples, upon whom the Holy Spirit moved to quicken their hearts to the revelation of Almighty God through His incarnate Son, Jesus Christ. But there was another aspect to parables that was true as well. And this aspect was that the parable itself was a sort of encryption. It blinded, actually, or made more confusing to the unbeliever, those without ears to hear the truth of God proclaimed. In this way, we find that the prophecy or the parable went forward in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, which said, and Jesus himself quotes, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And later, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes for this or and their eyes they have closed this should be amazing to us as we think about it and it should be heartening to us if we ourselves have been privileged to understand something of the scriptures and especially the parables usually today you hear ministers taking on the burden of making god's word accessible and simple He will add illustrations, and he will try to come up with clever ways and stories and anecdotes to make the complex understandable. But in a very real sense, in the sovereignty of God, part of the ministry of Jesus was to make that which would otherwise be known something that was yet foreign to the ears and eyes of those who would not repent, had no ears to hear, had no eyes to see. This is to say the following... There is a miracle of hearing that takes place when the gospel is understood in your ears today. If the scriptures do not bounce off your consciousness, like I have no idea what that means, then the Holy Spirit is alive and well in your soul, illuminating by the power of His might the truths of the scriptures to you. Now today we have a parable, and it is indeed hard for us to understand until the Spirit opens our eyes. He does so through His means of the Scriptures, opened with the context revealing how and where these pieces fit together. We read, of course, then in the context that these parables serve both to illumine for those two eyes to see and to veil as a judgment on the uh, the spiritually dull of hearing. And in light of this hermeneutical note, that is the purpose of parables, Matthew 25, 1-12, through 12, the parable of the virgins, is doubly ironic, if you will. It is a parable about dullness. It is a parable about drowsiness. It is a parable about those who are hard of hearing. And so for the spiritually obtuse, it will both describe them and sedate them. However, listen, for those with ears to hear, and may the Lord grant us ears to hear this morning, Matthew 25, 1-12, the parable of the virgins is a signal warning against spiritual laziness and apathy. It is the first of two waiting parables in Matthew's fifth discourse. And it calls the attention of all with ears to hear. All who genuinely await for the bridegroom Christ to tend to their lives. Tend to their lives just like they would tend to a lamp that needs a refilling of oil and a trimming Of the wick. So, with that introduction, I pray the Spirit gives us eyes to see the beauty of His Word unveiled as we consider this parable in three major headings, three major points. Our heading today is Parable of the Ten Versions, examined in first its discourse context. The context that is of Matthew 25 and surrounding, and this teaching block of Jesus' ministry. Secondly, let us consider the parable of the ten virgins and examine it in its Matthew context in the book of Matthew. There are other things that Jesus has spoken that will shed light on its meaning as we retread some of our steps that led up to this moment in his ministry. And number three, the parable of the ten virgins can be examined in its canonical context. We'll touch on a couple points from greater scripture that allow us to see how prophetic imagery is used to draw to our attention truths about what Jesus has revealed here, using imagery like the calling forth of, these, uh, of the uh, master or the bridegroom upon his arrival, and the fact that they have lamps to trim and keep, and that there is a wedding in the first place. So let us consider under point one, discourse context. The parable of the ten virgins examined in its immediate context. Now, as we look at this parable more closely, it is more difficult on the surface to understand. And just a heads up for you, if you tried to dig a little deeper with commentaries in hand, you would get a wide range of interpretation. Part of the reason for this is the symbolic imagery in the parable is not given a kind of code or cipher. There isn't a counterpart explanation. So when we read in 251, then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Jesus doesn't explicitly say right here in the text, who do the virgins represent? He doesn't explicitly say, this is the oil. He doesn't give us a one-for-one code to figure out why five are faithful, wise, and five are foolish. But I submit to you, this is just a, key, a cue for us to read a little bit more broadly beyond the text and see if its context can't fill in some of these questions. This parable is challenging for us, but the Spirit Himself can lead and guide us into its understanding if we diligently search the Scriptures. So this morning's message will be an attempt to do so. First of all, in discourse context, let us consider three ideas, virgins, virgins, oil, and drowsiness. Again, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins, so that's the subject, the main focus of the parable is on these virgins who have a particular task. They are ordained as participants in a great ceremony that will celebrate this marriage, this momentous occasion in the life of the bride and groom. They will welcome the arrival of the bridegroom, no doubt at the chambers of the bride or at the house or what have you, with their lamps burning, to bring the party to the place of their arrival there at the, at the culmination of this ceremony. So who are they? Well, here I think we can see, again in the context, that these are professors, or those who profess faith, those who identify themselves with the Lord, with His kingdom, and with His teaching. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps, In other words, Jesus is saying that there are those, there will be a group of those who identify with His teaching and will seek to follow Him in some way. However, we find in the course of things that not all who profess Christ are truly of Him. We find this in the greater context, do we not, of the Scriptures and particularly Matthew. What about the parable of the wheat and the tares? The wheat and weeds, as it were, grow up together together. Now, it's hard for us maybe to discern between the two, but during the maturation of that growing process in the parable, it becomes more obvious over time. And there is a point of separation, but that final point of absolute separation between those who are in the kingdom and those who are just hangers-on, if you will, does not come until the final judgment, until that moment of God's sovereign decree. Where he himself, as we read further in this parable, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, or in this discourse in 25:31, and all the angels with him, then he sits on his glorious throne, and before him will be gathered all nations, and he will do what? He will separate people one from another. And in this case, the imagery is, as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. But we see by way of another picture, that there are also two kinds of virgins, as it were, that wait with their lamps. There are those who are faithful and prepared, those who are wise and prepared, and there are those who are foolish and are ultimately shut out from the wedding celebration. So these virgins then represent those who identify with what we could call the visible church. In theology, we sometimes see the distinction drawn between the visible church and the invisible church. There is, as far as we can see, those who fellowship and assemble together such as we have a small group of us today in the visible church. But the Lord sees past the surface, past what is sometimes a whitewashed exterior, sees straight into the heart and knows where the Pharisees are, those who just fellowship for hypocritical reasons, but indeed inside are full of dead man's bones. Now this is a frightening thought indeed. It should bring a sense of alarm to us. If you find yourself asking the question, am I one of those? And if there's a heightened sense of concern that you may be found among the unwise virgins or a Pharisee, a whitewashed tomb full of bones or wheat growing among or tares growing among the wheat, well, the Holy Spirit may be softening your heart to confess some sin indeed in your own life. But even that sense of concern is a good sign. The Pharisees, consider them for a moment. Did you ever read of a one, maybe one or two, that were sensitive to the authority and the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ who actually recognized themselves as a sinner? But what about the rest of them? The lion's share, the great horde of famous and vaunted religious elite. They did what? They justified themselves. They presented themselves confidently, well-deserving, they thought, of the best seat in the synagogue and the most favored position at meals and in society. After all, they were the experts in the law. But Jesus pointed to one who beat his breast in anguish and cried out, Woe is me, I'm a publican and I'm a sinner. And he pointed to that man and said, It is those with a heart, like this confessing sinner, broken, knowing his depravity, that will be with me in paradise that will share in eternal life, that will go away justified. It's important to see that we can be easily deceived if we don't let the truth and the weight and the purity and the power of the two-edged sword of the gospel cut regularly into our souls so we don't develop a self-justifying complex. But we, we remain tender to the Spirit's use of His Word to reveal those areas of sin in us that we may confess And in so doing, find our lamp full of oil and have our wick regularly trimmed so we are ready for the bridegroom. Secondly, consider oil. In chapter 24, verse 12 through 14, back a chapter and a few verses, this, I think, is the central text to this entire discourse. If you're looking for the theme in a nutshell, perhaps we could read, these three verses and get the main idea of Jesus' final discourse. And because lawlessness will be increased, verse 12, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This is the main thrust of Jesus' teaching. He's prophesying a day and age that is emblematic, I believe, of our time. We could ask the question, do we indeed live in a day of lawlessness? That's Yes, that is the case. What is a day and age of lawlessness? What aspects would it be characterized by? Throwing off the chains of the old Christian order and morality, questioning the status quo of legitimate, Scripture-affirmed ethics, and welcoming in a brave new world of progressive you know, progress by humanistic means. This is the kind of environment that is extremely dangerous. And if we are to uh, hang out in this spirit of the age, let it rub off on us and affect us and influence us to too much of a degree, what we will find is the love in our heart our affection for Christ, our dependence on Him, our knowledge of the Scriptures and true knowledge of ourselves, our our identity with our Messiah growing stagnant, lethargic, and cold. So this is the context then of the age. But we have this idea of love, affections, a closeness, a dependency, a relational connection to that which we cannot live without. I submit to you, that is the oil the love of the Lord and His love for us and our recognizing our utter dependence on the love of Christ who loved us so much to die for our sins and then our heart being stirred by that fact and us responding, loving Him because He first loved us and gave Himself for us. Meditations, thoughts like this, the simple, pure and precious gospel saints is like life-giving oil that refills your lamp to overflowing, if you wonder, how can I keep my wick trimmed, how can I keep my lamp full, consider the love of Christ and laying down his life for you, and consider how much you owe him in allegiance, worship, praise, and glorious provi- for the glorious provision he has provided on Calvary, verse thirteen, but the one who endures to the end will be saved, love and endurance. The perseverance of the saints is a necessary feature that attends the way of the church in any age under all conditions, persecution or great prosperity. As we endure, as we continue faithful to embrace the means that God has given, we show ourselves to be filled with oil. And we indeed trim our wicks. And notice verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. If you were to choose three key words to describe the oil in the lamp of the, fo- of, of the wise virgin, perhaps it could be these. Love, endurance, and gospel. The gospel realized and the gospel relayed. Last time we We're in Matthew 25 or 24 towards the end. We talked about an analogy of household management. And we looked to an example of a church that needed an application of Jesus' words in Revelation chapter 2. Turn there again with me and let's look at another. The words of Christ are applied through the ministry of the Gospels. And in the seven letters to the seven churches, in the beginning of Revelation, there is great application of gospel truths. And the first church... The church of Ephesus is no exception. And in fact, it's a perfect illustration of how to apply the parable of the virgins in the life course of a struggling church. To the angel, verse 1, Revelation 2, of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. We have found in context that these seven stars refer to the seven churches. Or I'm sorry, the seven candlesticks, lampstands. Uh, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven uh, lampstands are the churches themselves. Who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So now let us see what he will say to one of these. Verse 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But I have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, notice that language, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The same words that Jesus used for those who needed to hear the parables, but could not do so unless God gave sovereign ability. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, he who has an ear. He closes, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Notice this, the church in Ephesus was called to return to a prior condition from which they had drifted. What was that prior condition? It was the love and faithfulness, that connection, that heartfelt affection for their Messiah, that first love, if you will, that fresh and abiding understanding of their sins covered in His blood. This is what the church needed to hear. They needed the oil of their lamp filled up with a return to that which they had begun to lose as they had grown drowsy and weary and fallen asleep in some ways at the switch. Also we see that the threat here is the consequences will be if they do not repent, then their lampstand will be removed. Does this not remind us of the imagery in our text today? Those who are holding lamps no longer illuminate the arrival of the bridegroom if they are not fixed or if they are not filled and if they are not equipped with wick and oil. And the same way, the lampstand would be removed from Ephesus if if they did not fill themselves with the oil of love, as we've stated, endurance, and ultimately, the gospel. Third and finally, under virgins, oil and drowsiness. What is drowsiness? Well, we've already covered it in so many words. It's merely the opposite of those three. Without the love of Christ abiding in our hearts, a close attachment and connection to Him, a vibrant, and rejuvenating sense of our dependence on Christ and the gospel without an endurance in the faith and without a real love for the real truth, we begin to grow drowsy, susceptible to temptation. We begin to fall asleep and we are less alert, spiritually speaking, more susceptible to the enemy of our souls. How can we avoid this? Well, we can fast from the things of this world, from the trappings that would otherwise distract, but well, we must break our fast from the means of grace that would fill us. God in His grace has given us things to do, things to pay attention to, so that we do not grow dry, and weary in well-doing. Fellowshiping with the believers this morning is something like a refilling opportunity where we can, as we lift our courses of praise to the Lord, as we submit ourselves to the preached Word of Christ, As we set our affections and meditations upon His work on Calvary, we can have the level of oil in our lamp increase a few notches. This is necessary for us, especially in this inner Advent, in this interim time. We need that refilling. We need the means of God's grace. We need the prayers of the saints pooling with our desires, encouraging and exhorting and coming alongside we need the strong in one area to come alongside us where we may be weak, according to Romans 15.1, fulfilling their obligation to bear with us in an area where we're crying out for answers, hope, and growth. These are the things that we need, and this discourse, or particularly this parable, teach us. Secondly, notice under discourse context that this delay is by design. Why is the bridegroom taking so long? And the foolish said to the wise, or excuse me, let's back up to verse 5. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil. And we've heard about how this discussion went. Ultimately, it ended in this eventuality, verse 11. afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, open to us. No oil, no lamplight, they knocked on the door. But he, that is the bridegroom, answered, saying, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, is the admonition for our ears today, for you know neither the day nor the hour. What was the sovereign purpose for the delay? Well, the delay, I submit to you, had a separating effect. If the bridegroom had come, if he had arrived immediately then from our perspective, there would have been no obvious difference in readiness. All would have appeared ready. One of the purposes in the waiting periods in God's course of sovereign events is to separate indeed the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats. Jesus himself has indicated. He says in 2664 in his testimony before Caiaphas, the high priest in company, when he is unjustly charged, he said, To him you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. When Jesus describes an exalted state that he would soon assume, he is also referring to something that will fundamentally change but will be a state that continues from now on. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, we can see in one sense He came to His glory when He was ascended and received His kingdom at the right hand of the Father. And thus, from now on, or for this time on, after the ascendancy of Christ, after He completed His redemptive work, He now governs all the affairs of history in such a way as to purify for Himself a bride. And sometimes over time, that becomes the fire in the crucible to separate the wheat from the chaff. Some of you have been wondering why you've asked the Lord for answers to prayer and has taken many years to see it come to fruition. You've had to trust that the Lord will answer in due course if indeed you're not asking amiss. Others have lived long enough in Christ to experience those who once seemed on fire, full, full of oil, serving alongside you, fall away. They have not stood the test of time. But for all who have been in Christ for some time and yet remain this day, there is an amazing spirit-wrought gospel assurance that ought to fill your soul. God has given you grace to endure. Yes, it is sorrowful, it breaks our heart and we yearn for the backslider to return to repent like the call to the Ephesian church and we preach to them, we pray for them that they would come back to their first love. But if you yet remain in Christ, though you have gone through famine, trial of any type, sword, metaphorically speaking, testing animosity and persecution, maybe scourging and scoffing in so many words from family members, co-workers, friends, the like, you can see the power of God at work in you to preserve you until that final day. And that, brothers and sisters, is by design. Finally, there is a cry. God's grace comes even to the drowsy yet prepared. And so we see that we need to hear the alarm bells, even if we are, so to speak, in a we're regenerate, we're in a good state in some sense. We can still Grow weary and drowsy. In verse 5 it says, As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Oh, the grace of that cry. That alarm that comes through our sedated state. That wakes us up from the stupor of our lethargy. And calls us to faith and obedience and good works if we are in Christ. If people are delirious or oblivious to the kingdom of God in its ordinary form, they will be stunned and unprepared for its bold intrusion. In other words, someone might say to you, you know, you're sharing with them the gospel, and they might say, you know, if the Lord revealed Himself in spectacular ways to me, you know, maybe I could be convinced. This is usually not, however, how a heart is changed. The Lord comes to you, not on your terms, but on His. And when we surrender to the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is in our brokenness, not standing as judge over God, but submitting to Him as the judge over us. We are called to humble ourselves, deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Him. There are many who think, well, when the time comes, when the pressure's on, if the Lord revealed Himself in spectacular ways, you know, then maybe I'll be convinced. But until then, I'll reserve the right to be skeptical. I won't put all my energy and effort into this Christian thing. After all, what has it done for this person or that one, or for me, for that matter? Well, For those who are in this state, it is where it is the most worrisome of all. That is the hard-hearted stupor that cannot hear the truth That God comes to us in the simple, foolish preaching of the gospel. Foolish by man's terms, but to God it is wisdom. Wisdom that calls the dead heart to life. And through the preaching of the gospel and through the ministry of His word and through the proclamation of His infallible truth, the dead heart is sparked to newness of life. And what does it sound like? It sounds like, wake up, O sleeper. It sounds like, here is the bridegroom. It sounds like, come out to meet him. Listen to the word of Christ. It is the miracle that your soul needs. It is the message for the drowsy. It is the wake-up call for the sleeper, the gospel. There is nothing more powerful that I could give you than the scriptures. As a preacher of the gospel, it is my great privilege to share with you the unadulterated word of God, not anything of my experience, not something that I could dream up with technology, not some impressive display to entertain you. It is the word of Christ That has power. And that power is such that it cannot be replicated. And there is no substitute. It is the pure and unadulterated scripture that calls the dead sinner to newness of life in Christ. Let us value it as such. It is the cry that comes in the night of our soul's despondency. In the night of our soul's laziness and says wake up. There is a heaven to gain. There is a hell to shun. There is a savior who has died for you. And there is precious blood shed for your sins. The parable of the 10 virgins can also be examined in Matthew's greater concept, context. You know, the virgins there's two types of virgins that are seen in Matthew 25. There are those who are prepared. They hear the word and they're ready to receive it. Their lamps are then full and trimmed and they welcome the bride joyfully. They participate in the celebration. There's a second category though who are caught Unprepared and are shut out from that great privilege. There is also, in the rest of the book of Matthew, a range of response or reception to the hearing of the Word of God. The end of Matthew 7, for instance, which, again, is the first great discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, we have the reception of the Word of God given in these terms, another parable, the range of reception, if you will. Everyone, then, who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. Remember, we had wise virgins and foolish virgins. Here we have wise builder and a foolish builder. The one who hears the word of Christ and does it, submits to it, lets the word conform him and change him and direct him and rule him. For that individual, he is the wise man who builds his house on a rock. The rain falls, but what does he do? He endures. His love does not grow cold. The floods come, the winds blow, they beat on that house. But even in that age of lawlessness, if you will, it does not fall. Because it had been founded on the rock. The rock of hearing and doing the word of Christ. But in verse 26, by contradistinction, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came. The wind blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall. This theme continues. Turn over to Matthew chapter 13. Another parable comes to our ears. Several, in fact, that illustrate the range of reception, the response, the hearing of the word of the Lord. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. Great crowds gathered. And what does he say in verse 3? A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, You know the story. Some seeds fell along the path. Later he explains this in verse 18. Hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom. What is this? The proclaimed word of Christ. The truth of the gospel. The message of the kingdom. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it. The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in the heart. There is no response because the seed does not take foothold in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Jesus is prophesying again in Matthew 24 of such conditions. In fact, a tribulation that the world has not seen a greatness of intensity that would cause even the elect, if it were possible, to turn away. But the Lord will preserve them. He will do so by quickening their heart and planting His seed in soil such as we find it. And Matthew 23, 13-23, As for what was sown on good soil, this is one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. There's an additional parallel we'll find next week in the parable that follows the ten versions. It's the parable of the talents. And just like the seed produces an abundance, it's multiplied in the picture of the planting analogy that we just read. So it is with the economic or investment analogy in the parable of the talents. What do we see here? We see that there is a range of reception of the Word of God. The seed falls on all types of soil. If it has taken root in your heart, Praise the Lord and thank Him that He has rendered the soil of your heart receptive and fertile to His Word. And pray that the fallow ground of this society that we live in would be tilled by the sovereign hand, that titanium plowshare of the Holy Spirit, so that that desert that is cracked and dry might once again be palatable to the message of the gospel. We have so many false Christs. We have so many false Messiahs. No, they're not in the same form and construct that they were in pagan Rome. Our idols don't look like uh, Baal, Dagon, and Asterix of old. But yes, we have idols. Oh, yes, we have them. And the soil of the American heart has grown parched and hard with his self-idolatry. He exalts himself as a god and says, Who are you, O Christian, to judge me and tell me what to do? What is the Bible that makes it so unique and important that it should govern our affairs, this nation, or my life? this hard soil there is only one solution, that God would render it ready to receive the word of Christ again, and by His grace that He would raise up preachers who would throw that seed, that He would raise up those who are faithful in the course of their life, both you and I, to share the message of the kingdom, to go into all the world, all nations, and make disciples, teaching them, baptizing them, as the close of the book of Matthew instructs, in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. But we do find that as the seed is cast, it is not equally received. It is sometimes choked by thorns. It sometimes withers because it takes no root as soon as the afternoon sun touches its tender leaves. It sometimes is stolen by the birds of the air. But by God's grace, there are those moments where it takes root and produces for His great name and glory, a harvest, 30, 60, and a hundredfold. We also see a parallel in Matthew seven to our text today. You might have noticed it in Matthew twenty-five at the end of the parable of the virgins. What do they say as they bang on the door seeking entry, and are turned away? It says afterward the virgins, verse eleven, the other virgins came also saying, "Lord, Lord, open to us." But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the date nor the hour. This should ring a bell. In Matthew 7, we find virtually the same misunderstanding and disconnect between those who cry in superficial allegiance, Lord, Lord, and their rejection from the Father. Verse 21 of Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, Will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? We not cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, it's a parallel text. Those who cry, Lord, Lord, and then the confession, I never knew you. Why the disconnect? What was in the heads of the five foolish virgins, and what was in the mind of these faux miracle workers, was a concept of God and His rule over them and their relationship to Him that was not in accord with the truth. They did not understand Him on His own terms. I listened to a debate the other day between a Christian apologist and an atheist, and it was a congenial exchange. And I don't know who I was more upset at, the atheist, the God-hater, the blatant open rebel, or the Christian who did such a poor job just tiptoeing around the hardcore truth of the gospel. The man was never called to repentance. All his objections were taken for way, way too much credit. And as I listened to him, I heard his voice declaring that he he could see himself becoming a Christian, but if he did... He wouldn't be a Christian like you, fundamentalist here or, you know, biblical inerrantists over there. I'd be much more liberal than that. He said, I could care less about the molecules of Jesus' body, whether they were reconstituted at the resurrection. But I can see real value and moral merit in a sort of goodness and virtue and compassion that Christianity gives you for loving your neighbor in humanitarian causes. What was he doing in this? What if he converted on these terms to so-called Christianity? I submit to you, he would one day find himself with no oil and one day find himself banging on the door of glory as it were, crying, Lord, Lord, did I not do compassionate things in your name? And what will Christ say? Depart from me, I never knew you. There is no other Christ than the Christ of Scripture. I've said it before. Too often we make Christ out, or Christ is nothing more in the figment of the average person's imagination than a mascot for his own worldview. Christ will not be redefined or changed or malleable to culture or the things that we value. Christ will be bowed to, served, and exalted as Lord, Messiah, Savior of the universe, King of kings, and Lord of lords. Nothing less will do. There is no alternate Savior. There is no other way. He, as the way, the truth, and the life, has revealed Himself on His terms in Scripture. If we have a problem with them, we must repent, not change our concept of Christ. Because there are many who will say, Lord, Lord, but in their minds, they have way different view of who Christ is than He has revealed Himself to be. This isn't the first time that Christ says as much he says it here, he says it in Matthew 25, he says it in Matthew 8. Listen, verse 11 and 12. I tell you, many will come from the east and west, recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, notice 12, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into the outer darkness and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what has happened here? Well, those who were the ethnic heirs to the culture, the Hebrew culture, Many of those, quote, sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. Why? Because they didn't submit and follow and repent and serve Christ. But there are others. The least of these, the, paralytic, the paralytics, the epileptics, the, those who wandered the regions of Decapolis, the downtrodden, the outcast, the Gentile, the publican, the sinner, the prostitute, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Becomes the God of the lowly of humanity when they trust in Him alone as their salvation. I encourage you, identify with them. They are the ones who understand Him as truly Lord. And when they say, Lord, Lord, it's worship, not blasphemy. There is also in the context of Matthew's gospel, a sort of recapitulation of parables We won't dig into this very deeply, but in Matthew 21 and 22, we find similarities to our text today. In Matthew 21, you'll find a couple of parables that Jesus gives. The first is the tenants, and then into 22 is a wedding feast. Here another parable, verse 33. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants. So what do we find here? We find an analogy between those who are called to steward a home, being unfaithful in doing so, and upon the return of the landlord, he will put those wretches to a miserable death, you lent out, let out the vineyard to other tenants. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. for I tell you the kingdom of God in verse 43 will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Well, this is virtually echoed in the structure of Matthew 24 and 25. you remember? Who then is a faithful and wise servant, Matthew twenty four forty five, whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? But again, if they turn out to be miscreants, abusing their privilege, not taking care of the home, and terrorizing the servants under them, then they will be destroyed upon his return. He will cut them in pieces, it says, verse 51, put them with the hypocrites in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But then the parable in Matthew 21 is followed, ...by the parable of the wedding feast, very similar to our text today. And so a deeper understanding of Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins... ...is gleaned by paying close attention to Matthew 22, 1-14. through 14. We won't do it today, but I'll commend it to you for further study. You'll find there, though, that there are two different kinds of attendees. We see this towards the end of verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, "'Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment?' He was speechless." Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into, again, the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. There is a sort of recapitulation, that is, a repeat of principle, phases and stages, and even the way that Jesus delivers his message. These two parables, as they appear back to back in Matthew 21 and 22, are echoed in Matthew 24 and 25 as we have it today in our parable that relates the kingdom of God to a wedding-type celebration. Finally this morning, there is a canonical context, and I'll just touch, in the interest of time, on one text this morning. Turn over with me, and finally, to Revelation chapter 18 and 19. In the book of Revelation, it is often pointed out to us by scholars That though it is not quoted verbatim, or the the rest of Scripture, Old Testament specifically, is not quoted verbatim in Revelation very often, there are more indirect allusions, echoes, and repeated themes and concepts of the Old Testament in the book of Revelation, per, per word or per capita, if you will, than any other book in the Bible. Thus, in the book of Revelation, you often find the loose ends, or what has appeared to us to be loose ends, of redemptive revelation, Neatly tied up, sewn up, and beautifully presented. One of these we find in Revelation eighteen verses twenty one through twenty four. First, there is the language of judgment. Then a mighty angel took, like a great millstone, and threw it into the sea, saying, "So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with the with violence, and will be found no more. The sound of harpists and musicians." of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you (coughs) no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And notice this, and the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. Notice again, and the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets, of saints, and of all who have been slain on the earth. The reason I draw your attention to this language is because it is parallel prophetic imagery. And Matthew 23, we have heard the reason in part for this great destruction that will soon befall Jerusalem and the temple. Thus you witness against yourselves, Jesus has said in 23.31. You are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? He says, therefore I send you prophets and wise men, scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify. Some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. In you, it said again, Revelation 18:24. in her was found, that is Babylon, which is typological of a society that rejects Christ and persecutes his messengers, in her was found the blood of the prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. These conditions are ripe for judgment and also the nature of the judgment is listed. That which was health, wealth, security, hope, joy and just great living conditions that that economy and the commerce and the interchange of relationships within the society enjoyed will come to a screeching halt. This happened when Jerusalem was destroyed. Jesus prophesied this, he said, as he left the temple and sat on the Mount of Olives. He was going away and his disciples came to point out the buildings of the temple. He said, you see these do you not? Truly I say to you, There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Later he says that you can tell where the carnage and judgment has taken place. Lightning comes from the east, shines as far as the west. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. He mentions before our text a few verses prior that two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day the Lord is coming. So you see that commerce is halted. Those who are at the mill are interrupted. The lamps of the foolish virgins go out. They do not receive entry. The city is destroyed, and all of the accoutrements that accompany it, all of its commerce, the temple, the place, the unified meeting place, the center of society is obliterated. These are the conditions that happen under the judgment of God. Where is the hope in this bleak picture? Where can we find refuge if we find ourselves under such deserving conditions? Well, thankfully, that is also in the text. We found it this morning in Matthew 25, 1 through 12, where we received the promise that if our wicks are trimmed and our lamps are filled with oil, we will one day be found welcoming the bridegroom to be reunited with his bride. The picture of this goes on in Revelation, and we read it in 19, verses 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It all comes together, does it not? There are different attendees initially at the feast. There are those who don't have the righteous robes. And because they have no wedding garment, they are thrown out. There are those who do not have a lamp full of oil. And to to them it will be heard, depart from me, I never knew you. But there are those who will join Christ, our bridegroom lamb, at the marriage supper feast one day, who have been washed clean from our sin, clothed in His righteousness, who will stand holy, bright, and pure before Him, partaking in unbroken communion for all eternity. Yes, there is hardship between now and then. Yes, we do live under circumstances that could stultify us, cause us to go to sleep. Yes, it is dangerous right now, but hang on to the shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the Spirit. Keep your feet shod with the gospel of peace, Let your midsection be girded with the belt of truth. Raise the shield of faith against the fiery darts of the wicked one. And in a short while, as you stand, you'll be greeted by the bridegroom with your lamp full of oil, welcoming in the king of kings into that great marriage supper of the Lamb. And as you look into the distance, you'll see a myriad, that cannot be counted, whose voices join like a glorious waterfall shining in the bright blood-washed robes of Jesus Christ's righteousness, every brother and sister who has gone before and even now cheers us on from the stadium of glory. Let us close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great and precious promises that we find in your scripture. We thank you that you've given us means to endure when days are dark. We pray that you would call our attention to grab on to them, Lord, and to use the things that you have given, the graces that you employ, to keep us from growing dull of hearing, hard of heart, and drowsy of spirit. I pray, Lord, that the preaching of your word would awaken each and every one of us to the gospel reality of your truth. If there are any who need to return to their first love this morning, may they repent of their wandering and come home to Christ. If there are any who fellowship here today and indeed they do not share the communion because as yet they are not regenerate, they are not born again. I pray that they would hear the message of the cross, repent of their sins, place faith in Christ as their sin-bearing Messiah and try on for the first time His perfect robes of righteousness. Lord, as we leave this place, equip us to be diligent. With the love of Christ afresh in our heart, shed broad within us, let us go and endure, proclaiming the gospel as we see in your scriptures, Lord, as, even as we look forward to the end. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.